So, we are continuing our study in Ephesians. From time to time, I have opportunity to stand in the pulpit, and it is humbling, terrifying, but providentially, here we are. And the only requirement when handling the Word of God is the glory of God. Amen? Truth. God said something. We want to know what He said. I don't care. You don't care about what a man says. Unless what He's saying is consistent and agreeable to the Word. So we're in Ephesians 3, and we've been slowly working our way through this book, this letter. For the past few months. And if you were with us last time, which would have been, I think, in March, um, we looked at verses 7 through 12 of this chapter. And that message is entitled, The Eternal Purpose of the Mystery of Christ. I commend it to your listening. You can hear it at the website. And we looked together at Paul's teaching about God's eternal purpose for his church carried out in Christ. We considered the mystery, the eternal plan of God, which through the ages has been hidden, hidden in God, but is now revealed to his church and through his church in Christ. Here's some of what we looked at together in our previous study um, concerning God's eternal purpose, his mystery plan, as Paul puts it, for his church to know the unfathomable riches of Christ. To have bold, unrestricted access to God restored to his people in Christ. To have oneness with God realized once more, once more in Christ. That's somewhat of a mind-bender. To have holy fellowship an eternal union with God in Christ. We considered verses that support these truths. One of them was um, Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Paul says, Of this church, to the Colossian church, but speaking of the church of God, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, made known, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Christ is here now. He's in the church and he's in us. So we picked up here, or we pick up here actually in verse 14, um, where Paul continues his original thought, which he began in verse 1 of this chapter. And we noted last time the comma after the word I in verse 1, right? I, comma. 
It seemed as though Paul was pausing in the middle of his thought, interrupting himself, which is what he did frequently in many of his writings. And we came to understand that the last half of verse 1 and all the way through verse 13 of chapter 3 is a digression. It's a long parenthetical statement, which we talked about last time. And as we read verse 14, we see Paul completing his original thought, which is a prayer, a prayer for these dear saints, that it extends all the way to verse 21. There's no comma after the word I in verse 14, right? Paul continues his prayer for these dear saints. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And we asked the question last time, why did Paul do this? I mean, what was, what was it that grabbed his attention, interrupting him right in the middle of his thought? We noted that Paul was writing this letter from a Roman prison, right? Uh, from which he also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, known as the prison epistles. And that was written during his first imprisonment in Rome. And he knew that these Ephesian saints were aware of that fact, that he's sitting in prison. So he was concerned for them. His concern was that these dear saints might become anxious, even frightened at his sufferings and tribulations as a prisoner and be overcome with fear and sadness and uncertainty about what the Christian life was all about. This is why Paul wrote what he did, this long digression from the last half of verse 1 all the way through verse 12. And so now he completes his thought, this is all by way of review, through verse 12, and he writes this in verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for, for they are for your glory, they are your glory. Do not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul sought to encourage and reassure these dear saints by reminding them of the glorious gospel, the mystery of Christ, of which they were all partakers, so that they wouldn't lose heart, either at Paul's sufferings or at their own sufferings. And we mentioned last time that this is a very sweet picture of a pastor. Paul was an apostle, but he was pastoral. He was a shepherd. He cared for the hearts of God's precious church. And why is the church so precious to God? Because he spent the blood of his son to buy her. Right? Amen. Yeah, heart of a pastor. As a result, because he was a shepherd, a pastor, of course, an apostle, he encouraged God's people with the truth, with the promises of God, the good promises. And that is what all faithful, godly pastors and shepherds, that's what they do. They preach the word of God. They point you to the promise of God. They point us. We just heard a wonderful message from dear brother 
Vodi Bakum this morning. Faithful. There's warning. There's passion. There's desire. There's fear. The fear of God. Faithful pastors and shepherds preach the word of God in the fear of God for the glory of God, to the people of God, in the house of God. It's all about God. Amen? Amen. So, yeah, true pastors proclaim his promises. They preach the gospel because suffering and persecution are very much a part of the Christian life. And we should all expect that we will all face it in one degree or another as we live out our lives for Christ. You remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. All, and he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. There are those in our day today that if you were to visit their church on a Lord's Day like today, there would be tens of thousands gathered. But they're not hearing this. It's not popular. Who wants to hear that you're going to suffer persecution? None of us want that. But that's what is going to happen. So because that is in store for those who would desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. We need the word of God, don't we? Don't we need his promises? Listen to Jesus' word in Matthew 5 as an example. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm guessing Paul, as he was sitting in this Roman prison, was remembering Jesus' words in Matthew 5. And Peter 1 Peter 4, beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then later on in uh, chapter 5 of 1 Peter, Peter says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Isn't that what we need to hear? Isn't that what we want to hear? Don't we want assurance? Don't we want to come back to a promise that is established, settled in the heavens, and cannot change? To him 
be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, brother. Great example of people serving faithfully, honoring the Lord. It's great. All right. Um, Would you stand with me as we read our text? Our text that we're going to read this morning is from verse 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him... Be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. So, as we've said previously, Paul's continuing his original thought here in verse 14, which is his prayer for the Ephesian believers, but also for everyone who would read this letter like we're doing today. For every believer, right? So Paul begins his prayer by saying, for this reason. Paul states a reason for his prayer. So, we got to go back. We have to re- revisit the reason that he's referring to. And as I was re- reading commentaries and just kind of thinking through this, there's some disagreement about this reason Paul states. Um, as I was spending time with this, I just believe when Paul says the reason he's referring to is in verse 13, your glory. Your glory. He makes clear what the reason is that he has in mind. Um, So, in looking at your glory, we need to go back and review where we've been. And honestly, We'd have to start at chapter 1, verse 1, right? But because of the tyranny of the clock, that's not going to happen this morning. But I would have you look back at chapter 2. Let's read some verses out of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Keep in mind your glory. In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Drop down to verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Your glory, right? This is what we're thinking about. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Verse 21, in whom the whole, whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom also you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. So again, what exactly is Paul referring to when he says, your glory, in verse 13? God loved them. God made them alive together with Christ. God saved them by grace. God raised them up with Christ. God seated them with himself in the heavenlies in Christ. God showed his grace and kindness toward them in Christ Jesus, God brought them near by the blood of Christ. God reconciled them to himself through the cross of Christ. God granted access to himself in the Holy Spirit through Christ. God made them fellow citizens of his holy city in Christ, your glory. God made them to be of his household in Christ. God made them a holy temple in Christ. And God made them a dwelling place of God in his Holy Spirit in Christ. What a vast, boundless glory that we have from God through Jesus Christ. Christian, do you need a reason to bow your knees before the Father? Consider your glory. Consider your glory, which is from God, given in Christ. And bow your knees before the Father in worship, in praise, in thanksgiving, in adoration, and in petition. That is the motivator to pray, to remember God, to remember what he's done, to remember the glory we have in God, in Christ. It's compelling. No wonder the, the apostle is teaching these dear saints about their glory. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7 Familiar verses, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Right? 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Bowing our knees. Verse 12 of Isaiah 55. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The person who bows before God, who knows their glory. I told my grandkids these trees that are clapping their hands out in the field are palm trees, but that's what a grandpa does, right? Now, brothers and sisters, it's only when we consider our glory that we can rejoice in our tribulations and trials. Essentially, Paul says here in verse 13, my tribulation, your glory. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. But it was through this very gospel, right, the bold, clear, true proclamation of the gospel that these Ephesian believers received their high and glorious position in Jesus Christ, which is their glory that Paul refers to. So when Paul says, for this reason, we can understand that he is talking about all that God has done for these dear saints and all that they possess in Christ. And the glory that is theirs in him and through him, which is also true for all believers for all time. And notice Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father in verse 14. This seemed to be the practice of the Apostle Paul to kneel before the throne of God. And when he prayed, he kneeled. And we see him do that in other places in Scripture. You remember the scene on the beach of Miletus in Acts 20? He's kneeling with the Ephesian elders and praying. And again in Acts 21, verse 5, he's kneeling with those who were bidding him farewell, whom he was about to leave on that very same beach. And we see others kneeling in prayer, like Stephen, dear brother Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, is, in verse 60, as he's being stoned, he knelt and he said, Father, do not lay this against them, right? He knelt, but Jesus stood. I see the Lord standing at the right hand of majesty on high. And it was that statement that caused these people to gnash at him with their teeth. And I just, it strikes me. Because after Jesus' ascension, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. But here, he's standing. Why? Because God honors those who honor him. That's why. Stephen knelt and Jesus stood. Or like Peter in Acts 9, uh, chapter 9, when he knelt and prayed... And God raised Tabitha from the dead. Or like Daniel. Remember Daniel in Daniel 6, right? When he understood that the, that the decree was signed, 
that there could be no other acknowledgement or worship before any other god or king, right? What did he do? He went back to his room, opened the windows, got on his knees, as was his habit, his practice, and he prayed. Yeah. Or like Jesus Christ himself, in Luke 22, verse 41, as he faces the cross, he kneels in prayer. Kneeling before God in prayer is a posture which shows holy reverence, humility, desperate dependence, and worship. Now, here's a question. Is it required? Is it required that we always bow our knees in prayer before God when we pray? Not necessarily. There are other instances of men praying, standing up like Abraham, right? In Genesis 18, or King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. And there are many others. I just grabbed these. Or there were those who were sitting while praying, like David in 1 Chronicles 17. Or simply shot up a quick, in a moment, arrow prayer like Nehemiah did before King Artaxerxes, and he was afraid. You remember that? And he said, he just shot up an arrow prayer. God help me. In Nehemiah 2. And another position is prostrate on your face. And we can think of instances of those who fell on their face in prayer, but the one I chose was Christ as he was facing the cross. And yet we just said in Luke 22, he was kneeling as he was praying before he faced the cross. But you remember Jesus prayed, came back, found the disciples sleeping, woke them up, went back, prayed, came back, found the disciples sleeping. So my sense is that Luke saw him kneel as he prayed and Matthew saw him prostrate. Clearly, it isn't our outward posture that concerns God the most when we pray. Because we're told very clearly, in very clear language, and in no uncertain terms, just what it is God is most concerned about. God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, For God does not see, for God sees not as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, right? The Lord looks at the heart. And dear Hannah, in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, in her wonderful prayer, boast no more so very proudly, do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The intent right, the heart. Loved ones, it is always the attitude of the heart that matters most to God. And I believe that God's word teaches us, teaches all who would pray to him what the appropriate condition of our heart should be and what the right attitude in prayer must be. Holy reverence. Holy reverence. Godly fear. Again, Hannah, in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. 
Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Later on in verse 10, she says, Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And the psalmist, in Psalm 145, verse 19, the right attitude of holy reverence, godly fear, says this, He will fulfill the desire, speaking of God, of course, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And then humility. Humility. It is required. God says in Isaiah 66, This is the one to whom I will look. To him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. And in Psalm 34, 18, our call to worship. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Humility. And then desperate dependence on God. I love reading from Valley of Vision and some other prayers where men understood how to pray importunately. That just means with desperate pleadings. Help me, God. You are holy and I am not. Help me. Although that prayer, God reminds the believer immediately of the perfections of Christ. That's why we can talk to God. Psalm 34, we read this in our corporate reading. Verse 6, this poor man cried. This is David speaking. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's an attitude. That is a posture. Going before God with desperate pleading. That's faith. That's trusting in the Lord. Looking to him. Believing in him. And then worship. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Worship is the attitude God demands when we pray. He's not a genie. He is the God of heaven who deserves our worship. Oh, worship the king. Psalm 96.9, the psalmist says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord. Give to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And then you can turn over to Ecclesiastes 5 if you'd like. Um, but these words from the writer of Ecclesiastes are critically and crucially important instructions for us as we learn the proper heart condition, the right attitude, and most importantly, the biblical mandates of prayer. As we bow our knees before the throne and approach God. Listen to this instruction, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps. I think some translations have it, watch your step. 
Guard your steps as you go, be- go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Remember, Jesus um, brought accusation against the religious leaders, right, for their long, lengthy prayers that were prayed in front of people. This was written, obviously, for them to read, but they didn't pay attention to it. I'm talking about the Pharisees. Do not, verse 2, be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. Perspective. Psalm 46 gives us such a wonderful um, commentary on this, what we just read. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. These are the things to be thinking about as we bow our knees before the Lord. And one other thought about Paul's prayer as he bows his knee. And I really, I picked this up from one of the commentators and I thought it was excellent. Paul, perhaps, has Solomon's prayer in mind. As Solomon was dedicating the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and is praying from a similar motivation and desire for dedicating God's temple, the church. We're referred to as a temple, aren't we? We're living stones. We're building up that temple where God is to be worshipped. So, Solomon prayed. You remember that prayer in 2 Chronicles 6? He's, he's on the platform. He's on his knees. His hands are in the air and he's dedicating. And Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Let me read to you this comment. I thought it was very helpful. Many parts, quote, many parts of this prayer bear a strict resemblance to that offered up by Solomon in 2 Chronicles 6 when dedicating the temple. He kneeled down on his knees before all the congregation of Israel, spread forth his hands toward heaven. The apostle was now dedicating the Christian church that then was and that ever should be to God and praying for those blessings which should ever rest on and distinguish it. And he kneels down after the example of Solomon and invokes him to whom the first temple was dedicated and who had made it a type of the gospel church. This man's name is Adam Clark. He was a British Methodist theologian in the 17 and 1800s. I thought that was good. Dedicating the church. And while the apostle is dedicating the church, don't we dedicate ourselves in prayer? Lord, take my life. Let it be consecrated to thee. We're dedicating our lives to God. It was for this very reason, your glory, right, that all believers can and should bow, dedicating our lives because of the glorious position we have in Christ, in God. 
All right, so now that we've looked at Paul's reason for bowing his knees before the Father, let's look at his prayer. Let's look at the prayer. Verse 15. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So again, I'd like to read for you um, an explanation of verse 15. And again, I found it so helpful. Um, Let me read it. Scripture views angels and men, the saints militant and those with God. And what, So that's an old phrase used by the divines, the saints militant, simply meaning saints on earth, saints in heaven. As one holy family joined under the one Father in Christ, the mediator between heaven and earth. And he re- references Ephesians 1.10, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. Also Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Hence, he says, so this family, keeping in the thought going about the family, heaven and earth, right? He says, hence, angels are our our brethren. I kind of paused on that for a minute. But he quotes Revelation 19.10, where John was dealing with the angel in that text. And And John speaking, he says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But the angel, he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. This family of God's family in heaven and earth. Yeah. He says, worship God. So he says, hence angels are our brethren and sons of God by creation as we by adoption. The church is part of the grand family which comprehends, besides men, the spiritual world where the archetype, meaning just the original pattern, not just, but the original pattern, where the archetype to the realization of which redeemed man is now tending is already realized. This universal idea of the kingdom of God as one divine community is presented to us in the Lord's Prayer. By sin, men were estranged, not only from God, but from that higher world in which the kingdom of God is already realized. As Christ, when he reconciled men to God, united them to one another in a divine community, joined to himself the one head, breaking down the partition wall between Jew and Gentile, which Paul references in Ephesians 2, verse 14, so also he joins them in communion with all who have already attained that perfection in the kingdom of God to which the church on earth is aspiring. Then he quotes Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. That was from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. The family on earth and in heaven. From every family in heaven and on earth, verse 15, derives its name. Meaning, 
those who derive their origin and their name as sons, right, of our Heavenly Father. Um, they bear His name. To bear God's name is to belong to God as His spiritual people. God says in Isaiah 43, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Can you hear God's heart of calling his people to himself? The family, the father bringing his own to himself to worship him, to enjoy him. In Paul, he quotes Hosea in Romans 9, this idea of being God's special people. God creating us for his glory. Brothers and sisters, that is unique to the believer. To have that position. To be created by God, rescued by God, called by God. That's, that's our position in Christ. And Paul says, well he quotes Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved, and it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are my people, you are not, I'm sorry, where you are, I'm sorry, let me read that again. And it shall be said, and it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So, the family of God, where we derive our name, and now we get to verse 16. And this is the very heart of Paul's petition, his request for these dear saints and certainly for all those who are in Christ, for the family of God for all time. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. This is an amazing prayer. And someone said this regarding the statement, the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory, right? Um, how marvelous that God does not give the Spirit's power to us out of his riches, but according to his riches, which is a far greater thing. If I'm a billionaire and give you $10, I've given you out of my riches. But if I give you a million dollars, I have given to you according to my riches. The first is a portion, and the second is a proportion, according to the riches of his glory. God's word clearly teaches us that we must all be strengthened by God in order to live a life for God. No one can live a life that is acceptable to God, except and only those who live their life with power through the Spirit of God. 
Zechariah 4.6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, this limitless power from the Spirit of Christ is directed to and meant for the inner man, which is the real you, the inner person, the person that God knows. And the, this quote here, the, the, the preposition in, um, really translated unto from the Greek word, is a preposition of motion. The strengthening was to take effect by means of power imparted or infused. And this impartation of power was to be made through the Spirit of God into the inward man. The inward man is viewed here as the recipient that into which the strengthening was to be poured or the object toward which the gift was directed. The inward man refers here to the personal, rational self, the moral I, the essence of the man which is conscious of itself as a moral personality. Paul here is speaking of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It came from Kenneth Wiest. Paul is saying, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to control the inner man so that the inner man is an acceptable place for Christ to dwell. And that's the reason, right? This is the reason Paul is making his request that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This phrase, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, carries the idea of an acceptable dwelling, a comfortable place, an inviting place to dwell in permanently. When the Lord came with the two angels, you remember this account in Genesis 18? The Lord with the two angels comes to Abraham and Abraham has Sarah prepare a meal and they sat down and ate. And why did, why did, did he do that? He was obviously comfortable there to spend time with Abraham and Sarah. But the Lord didn't go to Lot's house. Genesis 19, he didn't go. He sent the two angels. And if you read in Genesis 19, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate was where all the business happened. 
in the city, the city gate. Decisions were made, things, transactions were going on. The personal presence of the Lord Jesus in the heart of the believer is not in view here. Um, where a lot was dwelling wasn't suitable for the Lord to visit, let alone dwell, right? You know, the purpose of the strengthening by the Spirit is now given that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The personal presence of the Lord is in the heart of the believer, uh, which is, that's not in view here. Um, that is taken for granted. The word dwell is the Greek word meaning to live in as a home. Part of the word is kata, meaning down. Thus, to settle down and be at home. The tense is error showing finality. The expanded translation is that Christ may finally settle down and feel completely at home in your hearts. He goes on and says, Dr. Max Reich once said in the hearing of the writer, if we make room for the Holy Spirit, he will make room for the Lord Jesus. That is, if the saint lives in conscious dependence upon the yield and conscious dependence upon and yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will make room for the Lord Jesus in the heart and life of the saint by eliminating from his life things that are sinful and of the world and thus enable the saint to make the Lord Jesus feel completely at home in his heart. Wonderful con condescension of heaven's king to be content to live in a believer's heart and have fellowship with him. Again, that was from Kenneth Wiest. I don't know if I'm being clear right now. I'm what a reason I'm having that episode again. Oh, Lord knows. But God's Holy Spirit is preparing a place for Christ to dwell in our hearts because our God is holy. Our God is holy. Christ is the one who is to be honored and thought about. His comfort, his joy, his feeling like I'm at home, not us. Also, in verse 17, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, one quote here. This at-homeness of the Lord Jesus in the heart of the saint is through faith in your hearts. This faith is in the Lord Jesus for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord says, if a certain one is thirsting, let him be coming to me and let him be drinking. The one who places his trust in me, even as the scripture said, rivers from his, thank you, his innermost being will flow of water that is living. Let him come to me and drink. 
And John adds an explanation, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those who believed on him were about to be receiving. For not yet was the Spirit given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this trust here is not a trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior, but having believed on him as Savior, the saint is now to believe on him as the one who fills with the Spirit or grants the fullness of the Spirit, as Paul puts it in his prayer. That's another quote from Wiest. But we're not talking about Jesus as a Savior here. We're talking about a place where he wants to dwell a place that's appropriate for him, a place that is holy and dedicated for him. We look at some of the things going on in the church today, and it's confusing, isn't it? If God is holy, why are churches under federal investigation for all kinds of abuses? God's glorious plan is that Jesus Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith right now in this life, that he would feel at home, comfortable, settled in, and welcome. When we are hating, when we are intolerant, when we are selfish, when we're proud, that is not an environment that is inviting to Christ, right? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the environment. That's the environment that is inviting to Christ. Grant me repentance. Let me walk in the light as you yourself are in the light. That's the environment that is so glorious and welcoming to Christ. Lord, help us. Jesus prayed this in John 14, verse 23. Or he, he said this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You can hear um, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And if you do that, we're coming to stay with you. Well, not we are, but the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God, the triune God. It's an inviting place. It's a welcoming place. God, help us. Um, so we have that union with God in Christ right now in a life that is appropriate for him because of the Spirit of God that is helping us live a life that is honoring to him. Praise the Lord. This is all the work of God, right? And not only here are we dwelling with him, but our, of course our eternal home. Revelation 22, verse 3 through 5 there will, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. 
for they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light or of a lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. May the Lord answer this prayer of the Apostle Paul in all of us who believe that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for grace, for mercy, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you want to dwell with us, that you want us to live lives that are inviting to you, that are welcoming to you, having thoughts and intentions and desires and motivation that is pleasing to you. And we cannot do that left to ourselves. We must have the Spirit of God to help us, to empower us, to strengthen us through faith. Lord, faith is a gift you've given to us. Faith is growing stronger and stronger as we study your word, read the Bible, meditate on it, think it through. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to know that you are bringing us to a place that is glorious, more glorious than we can even imagine. Cleanse our hearts of sin. May your word go forth and accomplish all that you please in the hearts of all of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.